Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. On November 14 of 2004, young six-year-old Alex Malarkey, you can't make up his last name, Malarkey, was in the back of the car coming home from church with his father. His father, Kevin, went to answer the cell phone. Don't use your phone when you're driving, please. Just before he hit a car in an intersection. Alex, young Alex, was thrown from the vehicle. The scene of the accident was horrible. It was bad. And one official called for the coroner because they thought he was dead. But Alex wasn't dead. He was alive. He was in a coma with an internal decapitation that separated his skull from his spine. And this would leave Alex a permanent quadriplegic. After two months of living in a coma, Alex awoke and he had a story to tell. Alex claimed he had spent time in heaven after the accident, that he continued to be visited by angels and demons even after he awoke from the accident. Alex said that he traveled through a bright tunnel, was greeted by five angels. Then he met Jesus who told him he would survive. Heaven was described as lakes, rivers, and grass. And the devil is said to have three heads, red eyes, moldy teeth, and hair made of fire. Sounds a bit like the imagination of a child, doesn't it? Six years later, six years later, the story was told in the book by Tyndale Publishers, the boy who came back from heaven. And it sold more than one million copies. It spent time on the New York's bestseller list, which led to a documentary, and it led to a movie deal. But Alex now admits that his father made the entire story up because the family had money problems. And Alex thought it would get him attention. His mother admits that at the time her theology was weak. But because of the success of their book, Christian publishers started looking around. And so in 2010, the book Heaven is for Real was published based on the story of a four-year-old. A four-year-old with an active imagination claiming to see a rainbow horse and meeting the Virgin Mary. Then Christian publishers came out with 90 Minutes in Heaven about another car accident. And after that, it was Flight to Heaven, also claiming to be, you can see the words, true story based on a plane crash. Then was to Heaven and Back about a kayaking accident. And finally, there was Miracles from Heaven after a fall from a tree. This was made into a movie with Jennifer Garner in 2016. Now, all of these claiming to be true stories and guaranteed to make someone money. Because the Christian church today has become nothing more than a hallmark culture looking for the next feel-good story with very little interest in the, in the scriptures from the truth of heaven. Some of these people who profess to visit heaven and tell of their experiences who have become popular don't even claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. But we have a better source. 
See, in the New Testament, there are two people, two people who under the inspiration of God told us that they were taking their envisions and that their stories are nothing like we get from Hollywood. In 2 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul wrote of being transported to the third heaven, the abode of God, but he was forbidden. Isn't that interesting? He was forbidden to speak of what he saw there. And the Apostle John also had the privilege of visiting heaven. But unlike Paul, John was permitted to give a detailed description of this vision. And this is what he left us this morning, an authentic account given to us in Revelation 4 and 5. And Christians, Christians would be wise to be content with the description of heaven given to us in the word of God. So if you think heaven is angels sitting around on puffy clouds playing harps, I invite you this morning to take a closer look with me in Revelation chapter 4. We begin with verse 1 where John tells us, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, back in chapter 1, I know that seems so long ago, but back in chapter 1, verse 19, I told you that the, the Lord God already gave us the outline for the book of Revelation. Christ told John, write the things which you have seen. The things which he had seen was the vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. The things which are, what are those things? These are the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And the things which will take place after this are the things that we are about to look at starting in chapter 4 and on. This is why John starts verse 1 of chapter 4 by saying, after these things, after the description of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. John had been warned by Christ that he would see things to come, but nothing could prepare him for what he was about to experience. Still on this tiny island of Patmos, still sitting there on this tiny island of Patmos, John was about to be ushered into the indescribable presence of an almighty God. And John saw an open door, the text says. He heard a booming voice like a trumpet and witnessed an eternal throne. With a door standing open in heaven, Christ called to John saying, Come up here and I will show things which must take place after this. Now Christ telling John to come up to heaven, the third heaven, the immediate presence of God. Now, let's be very, very careful as we walk through this text. Not a reference here to the rapture. This is not a reference to the rapture. You hear that all the time on Christian radio. This is not a reference to the rapture. There's no good reason in the text to see it as the rapture. But this is God the Son telling John that he was about to see the dwelling place of God. Because John was about to receive the unique privilege of learning about the future plans of God. This is an invitation for John to enter into heaven in this vision. John was still physically, still physically on that little tiny island of Patmos. This is a vision. But I will also say, let me say this, we do not see the church until chapter 19. Here's what you need to understand. There are 20 references to the church in the first three chapters. 20 
references to the church in the first three chapters. But none. The church is absent from Revelation 4 on, and you do not see any references to the church till we get to the marriage of the Lamb in Revelation 19. Now, why would that be? It's because the events described in these coming chapters are all about the future and the coming tribulation. The church not being described in these coming chapters is another indication from Scripture that the church is not present during the tribulation. See, Revelation is answering the question of what will happen after the church age. What will happen after we're gone? And it's going to be a time of judgment. It is going to be a time of God unfolding His judgment during the tribulation. And then it tells of the second coming of Christ. And it talks about the prophetic kingdom of God and the eternal state. But before we move on, I want you to notice again at the end of verse 1 something. John was told, I will show you things which what? What does it say? Which word? Which must take place. Very key word. Must take place. This points to the sovereign purpose of God. You see, God doesn't have just a plan for us. God has a plan for a lot of things. God has a plan for his nation, Israel. God has a plan for the church of Jesus Christ. God has a plan for the world. God has a plan for angels. God is still working out his plan. So all these things that we're going to read about must take place. And verse 2 tells us, Immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. John was in the spirit caught up through the open door to the throne of God. And the very first thing that John sees is the glorious throne of God and the one seated on the throne. Now, based on the teaching of chapter 5, I believe this is absolutely God the Father at this point. But I will have you notice that in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, before a series of judgments come, you see God's throne mentioned here, and then you see it mentioned again in chapter 8, and you see it mentioned again in chapter 15, showing us that God is absolutely sovereign. God is in complete control over everything that happens on earth, even during the tribulation. This is a vision about the royal throne of God. This is here to teach us that nothing, nothing happens without God's intention. He is the one granting authority all throughout this book for the judgments to happen. I'm reminded of the little girl who had lived her life in the city. And all she was used to were those streetlights, those stupid streetlights when you're trying to look up at the glory of God and the stars. And she had the opportunity to go on a country vacation. And one night, on one of those dark nights, you know those glorious dark nights that we're starting to see right now and late at night when you're starting to see the stars come back up here in Alaska, when the stars are showing in all their glory, she stood with her mother just gazing up at the sky without any streetlights to block her view of the sky. And this little girl was overcome by the beauty of it. And she said to her mother, Mama, Mama, if heaven is so pretty on the wrong side... I wonder what it looks like on the right side. She's got a point, doesn't she? See, John's about to tell us what the third heaven, God's residence, looks like. And verse 3 says, And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. And he who sat there. Now, here's where we're going deep. So stick with me. These words 
have been added to smooth out the text, but they shouldn't be there. They make it sound like it's God being described, but he's not. The manuscripts are very united on this, that the description of the stones is of the throne of God, not the one sitting on the throne. And that is really the subject back in verse 2, the throne of God. And speaking of the throne of God, all that verse 3 says was this, was like, throne of God was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Jasper was like a clear crystal. Think clear crystal. Sardius was like a fiery red stone. And this fits perfectly, perfectly with the description of God's throne that we see in Daniel 7, 9, where it says this, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was what? A fiery flame. You see, the more you know the Word of God the more you see its consistency. The jasper and the sardius were also the first and last of the 12 gemstones worn by the high priest of Israel. Isn't that interesting? And then notice back in Revelation 4, the rainbow, it encircled around the throne and it was similar to emerald, different shades of green. And it should remind us, it should automatically remind us of the faithful promise of God to mankind after the flood. So here's the teaching. Let's build on this. The throne of God and the verdicts that come from the throne of God are rooted in absolute purity, the clear jasper. His verdicts are rooted in his righteous anger towards sin, seen in the sardius stone, fiery red like a flame. And his verdicts are rooted in his perfect faithfulness to his promises seen in the rainbow. Together, these stones are teaching us that God's throne is a throne of grace. Even in the days of the tribulation, God is gracious. Because if he didn't limit it to seven years, no one would be left alive, which is the teaching found in Matthew 24 when Christ said this. He said, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then we're told back in Revelation 4.4, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. If you've read this at all, you know then that the big debate of this text is the identity of the 24 elders sitting on the thrones. Let's piece this together. This is a building steps. We have to put this together step by step. Let's talk about what we know. Let's start there. One of the ideas out there is that these are angels. But I believe that this cannot be true. Because I want you to listen to Revelation 5.9. Speaking of these same elders. It says this. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now this song that they sing in verse 9 is the evidence of how we define who the elders are. And here is where your Bible translations become important. 
The majority text correctly includes this text, and have redeemed us to God. This is why you see it in the King James. This is why you see it in the New King James. The critical text, which most of the translations follow today, incorrectly takes out this phrase, and this changes everything. This statement should be there, and it means that these must be human beings. It must be because only humans can be redeemed to God by his blood, not angels, not angels. But we can actually take it a step forward in our understanding of who these elders are. It says in Revelation 5, 9, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This wouldn't be just Old Testament saints of Israel then. This would be believers in Jesus Christ from the church. Remember, this is a vision of heaven and the future. And the elders represent believers in Christ who faithfully serve Christ until the end. They represent maturity. They represent experience. They do not represent all believers. But instead, they represent faithful believers who will one day rule with Jesus Christ forever in his eternal kingdom. They're chosen by God to worship and serve before the throne of God. These elders wearing white robes and crowns of gold, and I want you to put your thinking caps back on, and I want you to think about what that means. It means that they've already been judged and rewarded at this point. They've already been judged and rewarded. Now, if you piece together Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26, those two passages teach us that Old Testament saints are not resurrected and judged until the second coming. Revelation 20 is going to tell us that tribulation believers are not judged and rewarded until the second coming. So if it's not Old Testament saints and not tribulation saints and it's not angels, who does it leave you with? It leaves you with church age believers. Church age saints will be judged right after the rapture in glory before the tribulation at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Now, since this is a vision of the future, since this is showing us in chapter 4 and 5 what will take place in heaven right before the judgments of the tribulation, these elders would be from among the saints that have been judged before the tribulation. Faithful church-age saints after the rapture chosen by God to worship and serve before the throne of God. What an amazing reward. I want you to stop and just think about that. What an amazing reward these people will be given for being faithful to Christ. And if you understand everything I've told you up until this point, then you're understanding that the only position that fits this with Revelation 4 is the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Because otherwise, there would be no one rewarded and judged that could be the elders before God. And the description of the throne of God continues. Pick it up with verse 5. It says, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. You know, many years ago, one of my heroes of the faith, D.L. Moody, was traveling by boat across one of those great lakes. And one of those bad storms came up. And all the other passengers on this boat were scared. They feared dying. They were shaken in their boots. And they started a prayer meeting on this boat, asking God to deliver them from this great storm. And Moody didn't join them. Moody didn't get involved in the prayer meeting. He wasn't scared. 
And when he was asked about it, he said, I have a sister in Chicago and I have a sister in heaven and I really don't care which one I see tonight. (laughs) He's right. He's absolutely right. And that's why we turn to Revelation, friends. We're here to learn a little bit more about God, a little bit more about heaven Because by faith, we believe these things. I believe that this is what the throne of God looks like in Revelation 4. I believe if God takes me home tomorrow, I have an incredible future stored up in heaven with him. And John tells us in verse 5, he says, From the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Boy, there's a storm coming upon this world. Do you think this pandemic is something? you think the political upheaval is something in this country? This ain't nothing. This ain't nothing. Get your boots on because it's coming. There is a storm of tribulation and judgment. It is coming upon a world who rejects Jesus Christ. God's throne is a throne of grace for his people, but it's also a place of wrath. Now, the lightnings and thunderings and voices from the throne show that God has the authority to judge. God himself has the authority to judge. And we've already covered before that the seven lamps of fire burning before God are the third member of the Godhead, the spirits of God. The seven spirits of God are a representation of the Holy Spirit. It's not that there are seven spirits. Get that idea out of your head. There's not seven spirits. One spirit represented here as seven lamps. Because you have to remember that in the Bible, the Spirit of God, it shows us in the Bible that the Spirit of God is not visible to you and I. The Spirit of God is not visible to mankind unless he's represented some other way. Let me give you an example. When Jesus was baptized, Luke 3 tells us this. It says, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove. If it wasn't for this, the people would not have seen him. Same thing in Acts 2-3 on the day of Pentecost. How did the Spirit of God appear? It says, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. The Spirit of God would not have been visible had it not been for the divided tongues as of fire. So what we're looking at with the seven lamps of fire, John was able to know that the Spirit of God was there. John was able to know that the Spirit of God was present with the representation found in these lamps. And there's a beautiful picture here because we have God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit all present in the throne room of God. Glory to God. And then there's a sea of glass-like crystal before his throne. Now this is cool. This is so cool. This portrays the purity of God, the perfect calmness of his throne. Even though God is about to pour out in Revelation his judgment upon the world, God's not worried about what to do with the nations. God's not worried about what to do with Satan. Satan is a created being who fell, nothing more. And it certainly seems to be here that this sea of glass could be some type of firmament that separates God and his holiness and purity from all his sinful creation. Now, how do we come to this conclusion? We come to this conclusion because of teaching from the Old Testament that mentions this idea of a watery expanse between earth and heaven. And John mentions it here as a sea. Let me give you a couple of passages that teach us about this. Psalm 104.3 says this. He lays the beams of his upper chambers 
in the waters. Or Ezekiel 1.22 says, The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. There's a lot of questions here, but here's what we do know. Something like a sea of glass or crystal sets God apart from his creation. It's a separation based on his purity and his holiness. But what about these creatures? What are these creatures? I think they got John's attention. Take the last part of verse 6 again with verse 7. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. A little boy went to church for the first time. He'd never been there before. So his mother made him put on his Sunday best clothes and he had to wash up, even behind the ears, get all that mud off, all that dirt off. He had to dress up in nice clothes, different clothes that he didn't wear normally. His mother even made him comb his hair. And all the way to church, he was warned to behave, to be on his best behavior, to be quiet and don't fidget. Don't fidget in church. And they got to church just as the church bell was ringing. And when they walked in, the boy was curious by what he saw. Because he saw the high arches of the building. He saw empty wooden pews. And the people were whispering in hushed voices. They were all quiet. And a few were sleeping in their pews. And others had their heads down, kind of looking frumpy and not happy. And as the service went on, people were sinking down into their seats more and more. And finally, this little boy just couldn't handle it anymore and his question that had been building in his mind came ringing out for everyone to hear mommy mommy who are we hiding from don't look at these creatures in revelation and think that there's something we need to be afraid of something that we need to hide from this isn't a horror movie and it's a mistranslation to call them beasts as the king james does they're not beasts it should be Living creatures here is the correct meaning. These are angelic beings, much like the cherubim of Ezekiel 1 and the seraphim of Isaiah 6. But there are enough differences to think that they are a class of angels all by themselves. And they were created for a purpose. They worship God even as he pours out his wrath on mankind. And the wording of verse 6 tells us these angels were encircled around the throne. They form an inner circle to the throne as they offer worship to the one sitting on the throne. For these angelic beings, their many eyes show us that they are immediately aware of whatever happens before them as they serve God. And to say in verse 7 that one was like a lion tells us that it was strong, it was noble. One like an oxen or a calf, I think it should be translated oxen. It means this angel was a servant created with strength. And a creature with a face like a man showed it had intelligence. And a creature flying like an eagle tells us it could fly quickly. And I want you to notice verses 8 and 9 with me. It says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. These living creatures have six wings. 
Now we know that the seraphim, according to Isaiah 6, 2, also have six wings. And it says in the Old Testament that they have two to cover their face, two to cover their feet, and two which they use to fly, ready to obey the commands of God. And covering themselves to denote humility and reverence towards God. This could be the same thing here. And the idea that they were with full of eyes around and within seems to be that these creatures had eyes even on the undersides of their wings so that they could move their wings without interrupting their vision. Their movements did not interrupt their constant vigilant. They were always alert and always worshiping God day and night. Now, the text is not telling us it's not that they never stop at all, that they, they just do this for the rest of their lives. The idea is that when they're engaged in the work and the worship of God, they never stop exalting the holiness, the power, and the eternality of God, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, I want you to notice in the text the repetition of God's holiness. If you repeated a word a second time, it showed emphasis. To repeat it three times calls attention to the infinite holiness of God. But the majority texts, the manuscripts, don't just say holy three times. This entire expression of holy, 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 the whole thing is repeated three times for a total of nine. See, whenever possible, the Bible's telling us these four living creatures give praise to the eternal God. They glorify and honor him for his perfections. They thank God for his great works, saying, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, speaking of the eternal nature of God, past, present, and future. And then our last two verses tell us, starting in verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns down before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. I want you to watch the connection with verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and give thanks to him who sits on the throne of God, the 24 elders Worship God. They fall down out of reverence. They prostrate themselves before God and cast their crowns down at his feet. What are they doing? They're acknowledging his sovereignty. They acknowledge his right to receive worship. Casting down their crowns, their rewards for being faithful, shows that God alone, God alone is, is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. They may be in the throne room of the living God, but they know the privilege they have there. It's to serve God. A fitting picture because when the athletes of the first century would return home, they would offer their wreath or their crown to their God. And the rewards given to us by Jesus Christ at his judgment seat, even that, even that is something that will be given back to the Lord in worship. You know, we've talked about many times before from Scripture, from Hebrews, that a race is set before each of us. Your race is not mine. My race is not yours. They're different. We each have a race set by God before us that we are to run. Those who run the race before them by faith, those believers in Jesus Christ, will be rewarded by our Savior. But everything, the Bible's telling us, everything we accomplish is by His strength. Everything we are rewarded for is work done for his glory. And then notice in verse 11, 
the elders focus on the wonders of God's creation as the evidence of his glory and power. Even the elders in heaven directly attribute creation to God. See, I don't believe that you can believe the Bible and deny creationism. I really don't. It's consistent all throughout. Because God alone is the creator. He alone should be worshipped and recognized as sovereign. And God created all things. And notice the last phrase. He says, by your will they exist and were created. Now the King James misses again on the end of verse 11. So I want you to notice... Follow the reading of the New King James and what it says. It says, by your will, they exist and were created. This includes the elders, and that includes us. See, we only exist, Christians, because God willed it. And so to him and him alone belongs all glory and honor. See, Revelation is telling us even the coming judgment of God needs to be seen in the light of who he is, who is God. He's holy, he's just, he's gracious, he's righteous, he's pure, he's omnipotent, eternal, and sovereign. On May the 17th of 2008, Christian recording artist Stephen Curtis Chapman and his family suffered a very, very devastating loss. That was the day his 17-year-old son was backing the family SUV out of the driveway and hit his five-year-old sister, Maria. Four days later, Maria died, and a couple months later, Chapman returned to his concert ministry, and he opened his concerts with Matt Redman's song, Blessed Be Your Name. Now, this was the first time, this was the first song that Chapman was able to sing since Maria's death, and he wasn't sure he was able to even sing again. And he said as he was singing, it wasn't a typical experience, it wasn't a song, it was more like a cry, a scream, a prayer from the heart. But then he found an amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. See, because of her death, Chapman went through all of his songs. And then he started reconsidering all the words to all of his songs, whether or not he could still sing them and believe them. And what he found was that losing his little girl brought the meaning of some of those songs into sharper focus. This was especially true with his song, Yours, which addresses how everything in the world belongs To God. And Chapman then said, I've come to a realization there's not an inch of creation that God doesn't look at and say, All of that is mine. And so Chapman added a verse to the song, and this is what it says I've walked the valley of death's shadow so deep and dark that I could barely breathe. I've had to let go of more than I could bear, and I've questioned everything that I believe. Still even here in this great darkness, a comfort and hope comes breaking through. As I can say in life or death, God, we belong to you. That's what believers from all the ages have discovered. It's the truth contained that we just saw in verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. And so here's my encouragement this morning. Learn to worship the creator. Not just here, not just today. I love your singing. You guys are amazing. It's great to hear you sing at church, but learn to worship God every day of your life. Acknowledge that he alone has the right to rule because he alone created all things. 
And no matter what you're facing, even in the midst of struggles and pain, the peace comes when we reaffirm his sovereignty in our lives. You know, worship doesn't begin with us. It doesn't. And it will not end with us. When we gather to worship as the body of Christ, we step into a worship service that has been going on for a long, long time because God is always being worshiped in heaven. The living creatures in heaven, the elders in the throne room of heaven, in Revelation 4, their constant focus is on the will of God and the worship of God. And they praise him for who he is and they praise him for what he has done. They were distracted by nothing else in the room, and they didn't let their thoughts wander. And so I want to encourage you to refocus your life, refocus your worship, refocus on God and his glory, and learn the life-changing lesson that we belong to him. And you can trust your future, Christian, to the one sitting on the throne, because he is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. And we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.